My own dishwashing gig was full of darkness. The vegan food was interesting. The desserts were the best. My coworkers engaged me a little bit, but I didn't have the camaraderie of climbing to cement too many friendships. There were beautiful women, but it's hard to be the poor dishwasher guy living in a basement with no clue of where his life is going, waist deep in suds. That guy isn't going to attract some beautiful woman with direction and light. At midnight or so, I'd be done with work, and I would begin the five-mile bike ride back home. There was a supermarket midway, and on really cold nights, I would stop there, even if I didn't need anything. Often I would buy nice pens. I couldn't afford anything in the world that was nice, except those pens. I had all different colors and styles, and I would use them to create. With the help of a random guy I don't remember, but I'll never forget at Kinko's, I produced my first scene. The owner at the vegan restaurant paid for the printing, and one of the cooks did the cover illustration. I told him one day I was going to be a real writer. He believed me. Sometimes you have to say your dreams out loud to someone. He offered up a name. Moonlight Dream Chasers, he said, and added, Man, I thought of that when I was on mushrooms one night. Isn't that good? It was. Welcome to episode 13 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we are in the home stretch of American Climber. Some folks have wondered what we're going to do for season two, and it looks like we're most likely, I'm going to be reading from The Desert, which is my most recent book. And I think it's a... Uh, a good almost sequel to this book and really revolves around my love for um, the desert for Bears Ears National Monument and some of the surrounding areas. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. You can find those guys at stickerart.com and they're based here in Durango, Colorado where we are. Every sticker tells a story and you can get 20% off by entering the coupon code dirtbag at checkout. You can support this podcast at the links in the show notes or in the link in our bio on Instagram. I always say the best way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe to it. Keep it flowing in your mailbox. And even if you don't have a mailbox, you can choose the dirtbag treatment option. And that means we'll check in with you before every issue is shipped. So if you're on the road, you can still get a zine. For my dirtbags, for my climbers, and for the people who want to be dirtbag climbers, let's get into episode 13 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. The coming home was the sweetest part of the journey back in those days. Perhaps it was my lack of purpose, because in Gunny, I had more purpose. I had a community that knew me and supported me, and I had a dishwashing gig in Crested Butte I could always go back to. The greening of the landscape excited the poet in me and so did the promise of being with a woman. That summer I dirtbagged it even more than the one before, living in a tent in my friend's front yard at the Saboya Lodge, the same complex I'd lived at the year before. The dirtbags had taken over. There were friends living in campers in the parking lot, and the two apartments next to each other were occupied by many friends. For every person paying rent, there was a dirtbag living for free. We devised systems to pay each other back, washing dishes, cleaning up, a $20 bill here and every once in a while. The only person not too happy with the arrangement was the landlord, but he could do little to stop us. We had our dirtbag troops amassed at the line of battle, and he was still getting his money for rent, and everything was being taken care of. Plus, the landlord was something of a drunk and a drug user, and our liberal interpretation of our lease agreement by whoever was actually paying rent found it acceptable to use the space on our own dirtbag terms. Every decision was still about freedom, but I realized freedom is nothing without love. 
Yes, freedom is our war cry, that stuff that makes up rock and roll songs, that thing America is all about. But I studied freedom and drank freedom and lived on freedom, and it was simply not enough. Megan was the shyest girl I'd ever dated. She was a cute little redhead, a college student, and it took me forever to get her to open up and share about herself. We had little recreation activities in common, so we made one up. Fishing. I like fishing, but there's always ten other things I'd rather do. So we bought a fishing pole together and used it as our excuse to do something. The first night we spent together, she invited me up into her room. She had to, since I was living in my friend's front yard in a tent, and I had no place to invite her to. As we lay under the covers, she put on some music. Citizen Cope. It was the same record Karina and I had listened to when we were together, and it was like love had been on pause for a year. I couldn't believe she put on that music, and of course, I didn't say anything, and I never told anyone because how could you explain the magic of things like that? I suppose that's why I write, so I can tell you. Goddamn, it had been a long year, a lonely year, like my man Willie Nelson sang, though. One night of love can make up for six nights alone, but I'd rather have one than none, Lord, because I'm flesh and bone. Fishing adventures led to hiking, and one weekend before she was set to leave after the summer, we planned a final excursion. We packed up our backpacks in a tent, put the fishing pole in just in case, and hiked towards an alpine lake. It was called Blue Lake, and I'm sure every mountain town has a blue lake or a green lake, or two of both. Crested Butte does, and we spent the good part of the day hiking towards it. And then we assembled a home in the form of a tent. And just then, when camp was assembled, a massive lightning storm broke out. We just waited it out in the tent. The intensity of nature and lightning erupted into the tent, and we came alive, making love all night. It was as if we were the only two people on the planet, intertwined as one. In the morning, we hiked out, and a couple of weeks later, she left town. I left town after the fall. When winter rolled around, I was suffering from tendonitis and had been resting from climbing. Without climbing, I felt aimless. I started writing more, but for the athlete, mere mental exercise will not suffice. I was looking for an excuse to hit the road. I had to, and when my friend Sarah, whose lawn I'd been living in all season, needed help moving to Salt Lake City, Utah, I offered my assistance. Sarah was like my little sister. There were no romantic interests there, only a friendship that cemented in a way that all friendships were made through climbing and sharing the dirtbag lifestyle. She'd been recruited by our friend Adam to work there in a youth wilderness therapy type place in Salt Lake and had taken the job. Again, like I had in the last three winters, I liquidated my possessions, which weren't really that many because I was already living out of my car. I blasted off before winter really settled in the Gunnison Valley. I was on my way to Salt Lake City. In Salt Lake, I helped Sarah move into her new place and stayed on her couch a few times. I stayed on Adam's couch a few times too. He was more than generous. He was happy and had found direction, so I looked to him for the answers. He did all the sports, climbing, running, boating, biking, but his true passion was skiing. He'd formed a crew called the Skier Boys, which is basically a goofy outlet for 20-something skiers to be silly and ski. I was jealous of him, but through his gestures of an open door and an open couch, I deeply appreciated him and his generosity. After three weeks of couch surfing, partying, and exploring the city, I was already low on money. I didn't have much saved, and city living was expensive. I decided I'd have to look for a job. I talked to Sarah and her roommate, and they agreed that I could stay in their basement for a couple hundred bucks a month until I figured things out. I got a job washing dishes, always washing dishes, at a vegan restaurant. Adam thought it was so cool. He was able to have enthusiasm for my life when I had none. He had the stoke, the fire, 
the psych, whatever you want to call it. I did not. Well, I did. I guess I was just on a hiatus of being psyched, depressed, not seeing light. It didn't help that I was immersed in the smog of the city and rarely left that. My car broke down and I was too lazy and poor to fix it. I rode my bike everywhere and breathed in that awful brown smog that settles in Salt Lake City in the winter. As bad as L.A., they say. My routine consisted of working late-night dishwashing shifts, sleeping in until noon, and then doing the same thing over the next day. I rarely exercised. I felt the darkness deeply. I was living in a concrete basement where I could almost see my breath. The depression was not how it was in the years before, though. It was just like waiting out a storm. I began to write. Writing became my exercise, and I would go to the library and the coffee shops for hours on end and create stories and prose. There was a deep yearning and longing, and I channeled that into my notebook. I got my first laptop as a hand-me-down, and I started pitching stories to magazines, and I actually got some published. And then, after peeking around in the library and finding a section full of zines, I decided to publish my own zine. The modern zine is a byproduct of skate culture, of which I am not a part of it, but I can respect it. They were black and white, stapled together, forms of free speech and expression. I loved the canvas, but didn't necessarily appreciate the skate art. And then I discovered the Dishwasher Zine by Pete Jordan. Dishwasher Pete was a lazy man, a dirtbag at heart, without the climbing, who made an attempt to wash dishes in all 50 states. He had a way of writing that made you love his laziness, and he loved freedom like I did, and basically wandered from town to town, state to state, in search of suds. He'd quit whenever someone pissed him off, or if he just felt like it. At some point, Pete gained notoriety and David Letterman asked him to come on the show. Pete didn't want to do it, so his buddy impersonated him. Probably the only time that ever happened to Letterman. Later, Letterman found out about it and finally got the real Dishwasher Pete on the show. My own dishwashing gig was full of darkness. The vegan food was interesting. The desserts were the best, and my coworkers engaged me a little bit but I didn't have the camaraderie of climbing to cement too many friendships. There were beautiful women, but it's hard to be the poor dishwasher guy living in a cold basement with no clue where his life is going, waist deep in suds. That guy isn't going to attract some beautiful woman with direction and light. At midnight or so, I'd be done with work and I'd begin the five-mile bike ride back home. There was a supermarket midway, and on really cold nights, I would stop there even if I didn't need anything. Often, I would buy nice pens. I couldn't afford anything in the world that was nice, except those pens. I had all different colors and styles, and I would use them to create. With the help of a random guy I don't remember, but I'll never forget at Kinko's, I produced my first scene. The owner of the vegan restaurant paid for the printing, and one of the cooks did the cover illustration. I told him one day I was going to be a real writer. He believed me. Sometimes you just have to say your dreams out loud to someone. He offered up a name. Moonlight Dream Chasers, he said, and added, Man, I thought of that when I was on Mushrooms one night. Isn't that good? It was. I wrote stories of my climbing, my loneliness and darkness in the city, and even some fiction. I'd never written much fiction before, but the stories I'd hear about Mormon culture made my mind think differently. Whether or not you're Mormon, the influence that the church has there is quite powerful. The city is laid out in a grid system that is centered around Temple Square, the Mormon headquarters of the world. The fastest growing and newest large religion in the world is shrouded in mystery. 
The founder of the church, Joseph Smith, claims to have found golden tablets in New York in the 1820s, and he translated them to create the Book of Mormon. There's no evidence this actually happened, which is enough for the irrational person to come to the conclusion that he was insane. But we humans are not often driven by rational thought, but rather emotion and sensationalism. Smith also practiced polygamy, and the early Mormon leaders had up to 20 wives each. Driven out of every state they tried to inhabit, they found their home in Utah before it was even declared a state and created an empire. The stories I always heard sounded like fiction. A gay man I worked with who was a waiter grew up Mormon and told me they would use shock therapy on people who were gay, or the church would hire a prostitute for the man to sleep with in order to cure him. Or, I heard that in Little Cottonwood Canyon, which boasts exceptional granite climbing, they had a secret hiding area carved out with supplies for the top 144 Mormons if the world would fall into disarray. I also heard that they had to wear a special kind of undergarment, so when they died, they would be able to be identified when they get into heaven. Seemingly every day, I'd hear some weird stories like these. It was enough to make me want to not be in Salt Lake much longer, but I had no money, and my car was broken down. One day, I received the best possible email I ever could have gotten. The college back in Gunny was looking for a part-time writer for 20 bucks an hour. It was an escape from the prison sentence my life had become. After a month of going back and forth, I got the job. I was moving back home, once and for all. The validation that I could be paid to write gave my self-esteem the boost it needed. My parents were proud. My friends were happy. I was coming back to Gunny. Plus, I was relieved to start breathing fresh air again. The smog of Salt Lake City had got me down. And unlike most outdoor enthusiasts that live up there, I wasn't escaping to the mountains and canyons to recreate. I fixed my car, packed it up with everything I owned again, and turned back to the only place I'd ever felt was home in my adult years. It was in the middle of an epic winter, and the whole place was like a snowy winter wonderland. I was still suffering from tendonitis, and I couldn't really climb but my buddy Ben Johnson showed me a series of exercises I could do to help cure it. And they worked. By the time spring rolled around, I was back to being a healthy climber. My job was exactly what I needed at the time. I was in charge of crafting small little pieces that had to be technically proficient. They were often boring, like writing about money for a new building or a new coach that was brought on board for the failing football team. But it was time to pay my dues if I really wanted to learn the rules of writing. I wore a collared shirt, and every walk I took across campus was a trip down memory lane. I wondered what my former hippie self would have thought of this guy, who was dressed in button-downs and slacks, writing stories for the establishment. And then, something happened. Two months into the gig, the guy who hired me, who was in charge of the public relations and marketing department, left. He was just one year into his job and decided to go back to his old job in Chicago. Just like that, all of a sudden, I was the only person in the entire department. They moved me into his office, just down the hall from the president. It was like something out of a movie. Months ago, I was hopeless, wondering if my life would be spent washing dishes, living in basements, and writing zines no one would ever read. I was on the fast track to security in the world of liberal arts, higher education. And that kind of guy is one who attracts a woman with direction and light. Oh man, I was bullshitting my way through it. I had a degree in recreation, and everything on my table was writing and marketing related. 
All kinds of important people would call the office or stop by, and basically it was my job to tell them to come back when the new director was hired. Occasionally, though, there was a story that just had to be written or a task that needed to be resolved. I started weekly meetings with the president of the college, a giant of a man with an equally sized heart and vision that the institution should be a magnificent place of learning and discovery. He was a former professional basketball player in Europe and coached the team at Western from the worst to the first in the league. I was in awe of his presence and had a nervousness every time that we would meet, which kept me on edge. But we would have these incredible brainstorms. Sometimes a man has a lot to offer simply because of his age and generation. Social media was just getting big, and I explained that world to him. The college was successful in attracting donors and large amounts of money for buildings and scholarships, but their enrollment was declining. He was looking for every angle to put the college on the map. Maybe it was because he had been a pro ball player, and that was my childhood dream, or maybe it was his passion and charisma, but I wanted to do everything in my power to help him achieve the goals for the college. I was also in charge of writing the alumni magazine. There was a theme for every issue with profiles of several alums who fit into that theme. They decided the very first issue I would write would have a theme of service in the military. I was not psyched. This was still the end of the George W. Bush years, and I was opposed to the Iraq War. He'd lied to instigate. In the process of interviewing the people I was assigned to, I realized these were just people like myself who were assigned to a job. Some were fantastically interesting. One guy worked in the Secret Service and was with President John F. Kennedy when he was assassinated. Another was in between tours in Iraq. War had always seemed distant, but interviewing people who actually went to war was much different. The black and white that college me saw in the world started to fade. As my life became more routine, more 9 to 5, I strived to keep my dirtbag self alive. Of course, I was climbing, always climbing and I was still doing my personal writing. My interest in poetry was renewed. There were many exceptional spoken word poets who were students at the time, and a new level of performance was being reached. We'd all pile into a small venue like the Gunnison Art Center and have performances. Spoken words that you can just reach out and feel changed poetry. It made it come alive. Standing on stage and performing a poem I'd practice a hundred times was an exercise of the mind, and it produced an exhilarating feeling. I kept up with zines too. No one in Gunnison was producing zines, yet the nature of the creative scene made it right for people to be interested. Creativity kept my soul alive as I navigated the landscape of the 9 to 5 life. I was constantly trying to find ways to maintain my spot in the dirtbag climbing culture. I knew I couldn't let it fade, even if I was destined for an office job for the rest of my life and a wife and kids. That's where it all seemed to be headed. I'd walk across our beautiful campus and all sorts of nostalgia would build up. The green grass, the large W etched on Tenderfoot Mountain across from campus, red brick buildings. Everything that had built who I was as a person and as someone who found out what they needed to create was still right at hand. It was as if I just had to dream up what I wanted next and it would appear. Of course, that answer was a woman. With all that was going on, my life was still incomplete without a woman. And the quick love, the hookups were never enough for me and I would always be paranoid that something would go wrong like it did in my younger days. I was only comfortable with love when it was with someone I trusted. But I walked with a new swagger because I was a writer, and that was the only occupation I ever really wanted to do. I was still making mistakes and learning, and the whole gig was really just like graduate school, a truly higher level of learning, except they were putting money into my bank account instead of taking it out. 
Even though I wasn't getting rich, I was no longer confined to living in a basement or a tent. I still drove that same old Mazda that grew beans in the trunk, and it took me through some of my best climbing adventures in darkest days. I was still in love with that dirtbag lifestyle. I just had to have more distance, some space in front of it, in order to love it more. And I had to proclaim to the world that I was still a part of it. And the more I distanced myself from that lifestyle, the more valuable I realized it was, the more important it is to the United States and American culture. Which is why, a year into my gig, my buddy and I decided to graffiti the Mazda, red, white, and blue, with an ohm symbol coming off the hood. We renamed the car the Freedom Mobile. As a suit and tie guy, I may have lost all the street cred as a dirtbag, but when I clocked out and hit the road, the Freedom Mobile helped me regain my status. Freedom, as we call the car for short, made women smile and children dance with joy. She was beautiful. That is episode 13 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. Please do support us on Patreon or by subscribing to the Climbing Zine. You can find those links in the show notes. You can also go to the link in our bio on our Instagram page. And if you're a traveling climber and you still want to subscribe, choose the Dirtbag Treatment option and we will check in with you before each issue ships. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I'm Luke Mihal, coming at you from Durango, Colorado. <laughs>